0: Greetings in Jesus name and I too want to welcome each and every one of you to the service here today uh, Before I get started on today's message. I do have an object lesson for the children So if the children want to come up, you can uh, come forward and I've got a little object lesson I'd like to do and talk about this morning and then we'll go from there. So the children come on up whoever like. Thank you, Jeff. I, if I was gonna bring one. I totally forgot it. So anyway uh it's just a lesson that I, I think about his life because we see one side of it, but there's a complete nutrition underneath it. This morning, I'm going to be sharing from Revelation 21. Um, so, if you want to turn to that, we'll be reading part of it, Revelation 21. And this morning's message is titled "Heaven," and uh, I know that heaven becomes a little more real, you know, in a week ago when uh, when you. Laid to rest a loved one. And we talked about it, and I I had this in mind long before mom passed. But uh, it is something that I don't think sometimes I think enough about. And, And I realize here in Revelation 21, it's a vision that John saw. And he starts describing the new Jerusalem, or the new heaven. And I'd like to just spend a few moments here this morning encouraging us. As we, as we walk this journey of life. Um, Revelation 21, the first eight verses once, and we'll go from there. And Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the form things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these things are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I'm not going to go through and read the next, next section here on lieu of time, But I would like to, he goes on to describe in later on there in the verses, and he describes uh, the New Jerusalem. And he says that it's a square. It's equal in length and width and all. And so I'd like to, he says there's 12 gates and 12 foundations in this New Jerusalem. I'd like to spend just a few moments of time here talking about the dimensions. And it says it's 12,000 furlongs long. So does anybody know how how long that is, how big that is? If you're a math whiz. One furlong equals 220 yards. You got it, 1,500 miles is what they roughly, it's like 14 something or other, exactly. So I I went to dear old Google and uh, asked how far it is from Denver, Colorado to the middle of Pennsylvania. And Pittsburgh's too close and Philadelphia's too far. So somewhere in between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, from there to Denver, Colorado is 1,500 miles. So this new city is 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. So if we've got that east to west, and just so we can, I can kind of put my mind around it, from International Falls, which is at the Canadian border, if I'm not mistaken, 1,500 miles south would be New Orleans, which is on the Gulf of Mexico. So the new heaven, roughly like i said don't go home and uh say i lied i was six miles off because i'm doing it in rough numbers but is roughly the size from denver to the middle of pennsylvania from international falls to new orleans square now when it talks about square it means it's that high too it's in cubic miles so i've got a little bit of a, a reading here i want to put into perspective by rex true Um, Driving at 55 miles per hour, it would take a little longer than 27 hours and 15 minutes to drive that distance. Walking at a steady pace of 5 miles an hour, a person could walk 1,500 miles in 300 hours or 12 and a half days, assuming that they didn't stop to rest. If a person rested half the time, which is more feasible, they could still walk that distance in 25 days. However, the city is as wide as it is long. This means that we could walk from one edge of the city to the other in 25 days. It would take another 25 days to walk the other direction, to cross the city. Now it's starting to sound a little large. It is also 1,500 miles high. To get a grip of that part, figure a story. A 10-story building, what they're like is 10 feet for each story. If each story was 10 foot tall how many stories high would the city be? It would be 7,920,000 stories in height. That's nearly 8 million stories high in a city, and it would take 25 days, walking it that fast, to walk across it. Now that's not one skyscraper. It says it is as high as it is wide in length. So, just I want to run this past you real quickly here. Let's say that it takes 25 days to walk from the eastern wall to the western wall of the city and that you then want to go up a level, walk the whole distance back, go up a level, and so on until you get to the top of this city. You could do it only, you know, you could do it in only 542,465 years. So it's going to be a big place. And I only throw that out to you to make you think about this new heaven, this new earth. And when we talk about heaven, the magnitude of of heaven. I'm going to pick it back up in uh, verse 22 and read till the end of the chapter. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are in its temple. And the city had no more sun or the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter in it anything that defiles or causes abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of life. So when we talk about heaven... I wanted to finish that, the end portion there because I do believe that, that as we look at heaven, one of the things we have to look at is who is in heaven. Because heaven is a place, heaven is a prepared place, and heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. So it's a place, it's a prepared place, because Jesus says in Matthew 4, or John 14, he says, I go to prepare a place for you, and then I will come again. So we know that heaven is there. It is a prayer place. And it is for people that have made preparation to go with God to heaven. Going back, verse 3, in, uh, verse, in chapter 21. And it says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And I think that is one of the biggest things I want to encourage. Is as we look to heaven, and we, as we look unto uh, the final destination, you may say, Heaven is the dwelling place of God. Heaven is a place where God is, and that should give us excitement. We should be excited to understand that as we look at the attributes of heaven and the encouragement of heaven, is God himself is there. And I believe that is the number one thing that we should really be excited about going to heaven. Now we get on to verse 4, and it talks about there's no more pain, there's no more sorrow, no more death. Former things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Verse 4 and 5 in Revelation 21. So we look forward to this positive side of it. We look forward to the side of, uh, you might say, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more ailments. We'll have a new body. Now you young children here, you might think hey, life is pretty good, and you're, you're kind of right. And I, I tell people jokingly, after 30, it's, it is a kind of a steady hill downhill with our body. Doesn't mean we're old and can't do anything, it just feels different the next day. But I do believe that when we get to heaven, we're going to have a brand new body. We're going to have a brand new body to worship our Lord and Savior with. I'd like us To look, verse 6, and he said, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. That I am the Alpha Omega is God. And in the end, and this is what should bring Christians excitement. In the end, there is only one being that is in control of everything. Our world is chaotic. Our world has people who think they're in control, people who don't think they're in control, people who just think they can be in control, and people who don't have a control. But in the end, there is only going to be one being, superior, supreme being, and that is God. He says, I am the beginning, and I am the end. And that God is the God that we serve. That's the God that's going to be there. That is the God that's going to dwell heaven with us. For those of us that are believers. And it says, I will give you the water of life freely. And I believe that should give us excitement. I don't think we should be scared of God. I don't think we should look at it and say, God's the beginning and the end, oh no, what's gonna happen. But I think that should give us a reverence of the Almighty God. Because ultimately, He is in control. He is in control of what happens. And that, that to me, when I was studying heaven and looking at heaven and, and the different uh, attributes of heaven, that, that excited me. Because no longer will we have fallen, broken legs, and paralyzed, and all this other stuff that we deal with today because of our fallen world. And you know, a while back, I can't even remember what happened, so forgive me for the lack of illustration here, but somebody was saying something. I said, We live in a fallen world. Like, we kind of think, well, it should be good. We live in a fallen world. It doesn't mean that we can't be victorious because we can through Jesus Christ. But we also have to realize that sometimes pain and sorrow is because we live in a fallen world with sin in it. He goes on to say, he says uh, in verse 7, He who will come shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. Right there, that very verse, when I was studying, just gave me an excitement. Because he will be our God, and we will be his son. For those of us that serve him, he says, I will be his God. You know, it's not going to be questioning who is your God. What are you serving? What are you doing? When we get to heaven, for those of us that are believers, we will know who is God, and we will worship him. It puts in heaven should put into perspective some things in life that really matter and some that don't. You know, I, I sometimes am amazed at, um, at what death can do. And it's kind of a good thing because it reminds us that we are not here forever. We're only on a pilgrimage. We're only passing through. That's all we are. But sometimes death can bring out the worst in somebody and sometimes it can bring out the best in people. And I, and I do believe that when we look at death, it brings us back to the reality of our life. It should not bring us to the point of depression or frustrations because we know that there is a heaven. Christ said there is a heaven. And then in verse 8, he goes on to say, and he lists these things of uh of things that are not going to be found in heaven. And he says uh he says the cowardly, unbelieving. And I came across the Joseph Wallace made mention of these and he kind of explained it so well. I'm just going to read his little definition for each one of these. And he says the fearful, those afraid to accept Christ. The unbelieving, those will not believe the word of God on matters of salvation, sin, and judgment. The bottom those polluted, contaminated with evil. The murderers, those who kill people directly or indirectly. The whoremongers, those who break God's laws concerning sex. The sorcerers, literally a dealer in drugs, witchcraft. Idolaters, all who put or worship anything above God. All liars, liars without remorse. Lying contradicts the very character of God. Because God says, I am the truth and the way. And I, and I like them, them illustrations of things that are not going to be found in heaven. I know I don't like to always focus on that negative side of it, but I think we have to be honest with the truth. And the truth is there are going to be things that will keep you from heaven, and it is called sin. And I look at these and I think, well, I, I do pretty good. I haven't killed anybody that I know of. I haven't done a lot of this, but... How about worship anything other than God? If there was an electric time clock that carried around with me and you this last week, and right now we could just punch in there and we could say, um, I don't know who to pick on today, Lisa. And it would come up exactly the hour she spent doing whatever she spent. And you had no idea who Lisa was. Would we say there's an idol or would we say there's not? And I'm not picking on Lisa by any means, but if we did not know and we seen a readout of somebody and it said how many moments we were doing what? And it said how many times we sat on, you name the exercise of what you do or don't do. Would we say there's no other idol except for God Almighty and her their service is towards God? Or what would it say? What would your idol be? It talks about the, them burn with the fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I, God didn't say in here. He says, "Well, there's uh, heaven and there's hell, and you know, but I'll be pretty lenient and uh, we'll look the other way." No, he says, "These are not going to be found in heaven." You're not arguing with me. You're arguing with God's word. I hope and pray that none of them are found amongst us. Jumping on down through where I even did not read there, 10 and 11, and he talks about having the glory of God and the light, the light of the precious stone and the jasper stone. And I'd like us to think about that again because the glory of God will fill up heaven. The very presence of God. And I know my children have asked, we probably all thought, it. so what are you going to do in heaven? Like, literally, what are you going to do in heaven? I mean, I, I don't mind singing, but are you really going to be able to sing 24-7? And I think that's where our, our brains really can't always comprehend heaven. I don't know. It may be a city full of hustle and bustle. It may just be the fact that we're in God's presence. I believe that is so, so powerful. It says on down there in verse 18 and 19, That the wall will be made of jasper stone, a very precious stone. And that the city will be pure gold, like clear glass. And that the foundation will be adorned with all kinds of precious stones. Now this is the foundation. This is the underneath part will be full of precious stones. This city is absolutely amazing, in my opinion. Because it is going to be pure gold. I believe that heaven is even greater than we can really imagine. Moving on to verse 22, and he says, but I, but I saw no temple in it. And I found that very intriguing when I was studying the New Jerusalem. And it's because it doesn't need to be a temple as they knew the temple anymore. Because God was with them. Because the Lord Almighty, and he goes on to say, this, For the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And then he says, "As has no need of sun. There will be no night. Because we're in the presence of God. And that kind of gave me shivers. If I can say it that way. Because I do believe that this description, I know it's revelation, and I know some things are figuratively, but I do believe this figuratively picture of a beautiful city with God in it and God dwelling in it in the very presence of God it's what we look at when we look at heaven. So what, will, what must we do? Moving on to chapter 22, verses 14. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right of the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Verses 18. For I testify to anyone who hears the word of the prophecies of the book, if anyone adds to these things God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take, him, take away his part of the book of life from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. And I, I point them two things out because we must do his commandments and then he goes on to say, he said, if we add to or take anything away from God's word, then we are in jeopardy He'll add him to the plagues that are written in his book. And if you want to reread Revelation, I encourage you to. But I don't think any of us would desire to have them plagues. He says, if you take away from the words of this prophet, he'll take you away from the book of life. And then back at 14, he says, are you doing these commandments? So as we look at it, do we live it out? Are we living it out? John 14, and I'm not going to take the time to turn back to John 14, 1 through 7. But Jesus says, I go to prepare a place. And then he goes on, the disciples say, How do I get there? And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father except by me. And unfortunately, in our world today, there's a lot of people that say there's many ways to heaven. You can get there to heaven through multiple different ways, and we just all got to look at it that way. But Jesus does not. He says, "I am the way, only through Jesus Christ, only through, through this blood that Christ shed on Calvary, and our acceptance of that salvation, and then our living and our, our living for Him and glorifying Him will we find ourselves in heaven. I, I, there's no other way that I can see it in Scripture. When Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth and the life," it is His sacrifice on Calvary that gave us the right. Not the right, the privilege, the, the gift of salvation, if we're willing to accept it. We have a choice. We have a choice to accept it or reject this gift of salvation. That is up to us. Jesus paid it all. He took care of it. He took care of all of our issues and problems right there on the cross. When he died there, that perfect sacrifice for us. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it is that gift of salvation. It's not fire insurance, folks. We don't take that gift of salvation and then just live however we want to live for the rest of our life. We have to do, as verse 14 says, blessed are those who do my commandments, or his commandments, and we live that out. And I believe that sometimes we get a little mistaken in our journey of life. Philippians 3.20 For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. And I ask you this question. Do we live our life as if we're citizens of heaven or citizens of this world here today? If you are a Christian, you are not a citizen of the world, but you are a citizen of heaven making your way through the world. Oh, we still live here. We still have houses. We still have to go to work. We still have to use money to survive. We have to pay the bills. We have to live according to God's word. So we have some of these worldly things that we have to do. But they should only be viewed as temporary. So what is important to us? What, what really matters when it comes down to it? I believe we should see people and relationships, communication, and the things that glorify our Lord and Savior as to what really matters as we walk through this life. One of the guys that I was looking at or studying a sermon he had preached, and he said, I can't remember exactly who it was, but he said, our affections and our citizenships follow our money. And I thought, ooh, he doesn't have to get so harsh right away. He could be nicer to us for a while. But he is right. Actually, I have the paper here. Freddie Fritz talked about it. And he said, I'm just going to read it off here. Suppose you buy shares of Ford Motor Company. What happens? You suddenly develop an interest in Ford. You check the financial pages. You see a magazine article about Ford and read every word you probably buy a Ford as your next car because you own part of the company. Suppose you're, you're giving to help African children deal with AIDS. When you see an article on the subject, you're hooked. If you're spending money to plant Indian churches and an earthquake hits India, you watch the news and, and pray. You develop a passionate interest in God's kingdom. Where is your money? Where is your heart? I've heard people say, I want more of a heart for missions. I always respond. Jesus tells you exactly how to get it. Put your money in missions and your heart will follow. Do you you wish you cared more about eternal things? Then relocate some of your money, maybe most of it, from temporary to eternal things. Watch what happens. You might be amazed. I ask you that question. As we look at heaven, we look at the splendor of heaven. We look at what God has done. Where are our affections? What really matters to us? And I believe that there is a waiting for each one of us. That eternal reward and that mansion on the other side of death. If we live for him and we accept that gift of salvation. May God bless you.